But in Ezra chapter 7 and verse number 10, I've got some thoughts I want to share with you about this. And over the years, I've read this many times, and I've had different sermons on it and talked about it with different folks, and it just seems like keep adding to it and all that. So I want to talk to you about what's on my mind about Ezra 7 and 10 right now. By the way, if you ever get involved with any kind of addiction recovery, the steps in Ezra 7.10 are exactly what all these addiction recovery things are, no matter what it is you're trying to recover from. And so Ezra follows that uh, and, and gives the pattern for that in this verse here. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Now, that's just a pretty simple little short verse there, but there that's a mouthful. There's an awful lot that goes into what Ezra had to say there. When I think about Ezra, and you look at the history of what was going on this this time, this is the the return from Babylonian captivity, and they're going back to the city of Jerusalem, and they're going to rebuild the walls, they're going to rebuild the temple. This was not always sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns in the Bible and all that. They were have Israel had been through some dark times and dark days. God had punished His people. He, they, the prophets had warned them that this was going to happen, and that captivity was a punishment of God. And now God's punishment's over, and He's going to have the the people come back, and 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 they are going to return. You know, the thing about it is, is, is they must have wondered, where is our God? In fact, is some of those kings and rulers before God would introduce Himself to them. By the way would ask him, where is your God? Because they were a conquered people. They weren't a free people. They had been conquered. They were being punished for for leaving the law of the Lord. But you know, in their darkest hour, God never left them. The great lesson of this, it doesn't matter how dark a day we have. It does not matter how hard the times are that we're going through. God is not going to leave you. He will be there. Jesus said, I'm with you to the end of the world at the end of the book of Matthew. He said in the book, I will never forsake you. God didn't forsake his people. He was always there. But his people had to learn to seek God. And that's what they're doing here. They're coming back. They're going to be in the return. And they're going to seek God. Have you ever read these prophets? Now, they face stuff, folks, that I know me and you don't. And I know we can't relate to these guys. One of the things we do, and I think we do a a misservice or an injustice to these these people. You ever seen the medieval paintings of these guys uh, or the Renaissance paintings, whatever whatever time period you want to give to that? They show all these little saintly men running around with little halos on them. And we make many gods out of these people. That's what we do with them. Ezra was a very special person. Peter, James, and John. Some some religions even take the term saint, which was used for the sanctified, and they apply it to one person. Like, he's something, he's a superhuman. And he's just not like me and you. You could say, I'm no Ezra. I'm no Peter, James, or John. No, you don't live in the circumstances they do, but you're them. You're God's people. They didn't have halos on them and angel wings. They were not many gods. They didn't have it easier than you do. They were just people that God chose to use to do His will. And He does the same with me and you. He's never stopped that. Read the minor prophets sometimes. These guys are head cases. They really are. I know that we don't face this, but, but they, you talk about depression? They, they had, they were depressed on steroids. 
I mean, these guys, there were some of them going, I wish I'd have never been born. What do you think that means? That is depression. There's one of them goes, run, hides in a cave, goes, I'm the last one left on earth. God had to snap him out of it and go, no, I got 7,000 down there that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, fella. Wake up. But that, but they got, after all they did, writing scripture, all the wonderful works they did in the name of God, and God was with them, they fought depression right and left. You ever been depressed? Never get depressed? Now, I heard a new term. We used to call it getting spooked. It's called a panic attack. That's a, that's the official term for this thing. Or an anxiety attack. They didn't do that in the Bible, did they? Really? What do you think the Garden of Gethsemane was? When Jesus prayed, not my will but thine, and he had sweat like great, great drops of blood. What do you think he was worried about? If it be possible, let the cup pass from me. You don't think he was afraid? The book of Hebrews says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points as are we, yet without sin. Now, I've got a unique ability. I think it's unique. Take the Greek, turn it into King James, and then I can speak it in Texan. You know what that is in Texas language? Jesus said, I, they said, He knows what it's like to be you. He was tempted in all points as are you. You don't think he felt fear? Anxiety? What do you think was happening in the garden? Now, on the way to Jerusalem, he was determined to go. Simon Peter goes, Lord, you know, if you go down there, they're going to kill you. They're going to beat the tar out of you, and they're going to kill you. And Jesus made the famous statement that I think the news media just butchers. And he says, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't calling Peter Satan. He knew Peter was right. You don't think Jesus knew? You think he really wanted to do that? These guys had all kinds of... They felt Jesus felt everything you did. He knows what it's like to be you. Paul said, it'd be better for me to go and be with the Lord, but for your sakes, I stay. Paul knew there was something better. You ever wish that you weren't in this world? You ever have one of those thoughts? You ever think the world would be better off without me? Yeah, that, that, it's great this time of year. Beth forces me every year to watch A Wonderful Life. <laughs> And it got to find out what the world would be like without him. You ever think that? Those are selfish thoughts sometimes that we have. It's better to go be with the Lord. And, it, it, and Paul knew what he was talking about. But you know, what about people that care? What about your family? What about friends? There are people that, that do commit suicide. There are people that feel the world would be better without them and, and they take their own life. They don't have to stay behind to see what happens to their family and their children and grandchildren. But what did all these guys do when they were having these different things? You ever have a moment of arrogance? Oh, these guys didn't have that problem, did they? Every king had it. <laughs> Solomon started off, Lord, give me wisdom that I may judge this so great a people. And then he gets full of himself and he's building, building altars to false gods in, in his old age. Every one of them got too, what we call too big for their britches. You ever think that about yourself? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. True story. I was holding a meeting, and in Frisco, they got these red lights, and they got these little cameras on them. And they take a picture if you don't stop all the way. 
And then they send you a bill. Neat little concept. I got one of them. I got one of them bills. And so I got, I got to pay the bill. So I took out a piece of paper, I don't know, and I wrote down the name of the court and the address and everywhere to send my, my payment and all that. And I'm, I'm, at the moment, I'm thinking I'm doing pretty good, you know, serving God and all that. Opened it up and it was on, the sermon was, that I wrote it on the back of was on obeying the laws of the land. And I'm thinking, maybe I ain't doing so good after all. You know what I mean? We ever get full of ourselves? Pride goes before a fall. Haughty spirit before destruction. What did they do to overcome these things? That's the question. They did the one thing that everybody needs to learn to do if you're a child of God, and that's go back to God. Every time they turned around, they went back to God, they went back to His law, they went back to His word. Every time, every single time, that's what they did. That's what Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. If there was any other way to do that, he wanted to do it. Not my will, but thy will be done. And they returned to their God. Years ago, as a boy, I heard a story. Boy, I always liked this. And well, I need to upgrade my stories. I know this is probably 50 years ago. But uh heard a fellow talking. We live down south of here, and they tunnel out that white rock real high. You have real high sides. I wouldn't call it. It's a cliff if you fall off of it. But, you know, and we get down to the bottom there and play on the railroad tracks. Well, when the train coming, you got to scramble. Well, there's a couple of kids down there in one of those deals. They got playing. They didn't notice it, and train's coming. I mean, it's barreling down through there. And so they started trying to climb out, and they got a hold of that side and all that. The, the big sister and her little brother, and they weren't going to get out of there. And this train is barreling down through there. And the little brother goes, what do we do? And she said, cling to the rock. Cling to the rock. You know, it's good advice. When you're having depression, anxiety, what do we do? We're fear. Maybe we get a little too big for our britches and get arrogant. What do we do? Cling to the rock. Go back to the God of our salvation. He's always there. It's not God that moves. It's us. You remember the story of the footprints in the sand? It's a true story. That's a true concept. We need to learn to trust him. You know, I have a hard time talking about Ezra because I, have, I want to say Ezra and Nehemiah. But why, why do you want to do that? Because they were together. This is a time period in uh, the Old Testament of what we call the Great Synagogue. Now, you know how things can start off very nobly, but they kind of get away from you. You ever had that happen to you? Something starts off kind of small and all that, and then it just kind of snowballs and gets away from you? The Great Synagogue had many of the writers of the, the Minor Prophets, Ezra and Nehemiah. Those guys are all there. There's about 120 of them, according to history. They were called the Great Synagogue. Only one other time has that kind of power been in one assembly, and that was in the early church in Jerusalem when the apostles were there. Now, the Great Synagogue, you don't know them by that term, and it's not in the Bible. That's just a designation that historians have given to this time period. But they are in the Bible because they became the Sanhedrin. You ever heard of those guys? Read about Jesus, and you'll read about the Sanhedrin. They went from returning Israel to their God and the men that were going to lead and study the law and apply the law and teach the law 
and to go back and cling to their God to the Sanhedrin that put the Son of God to death. How's that happen? I read a deal about the Pharisees. You ever wonder about these guys? Take this for what it's worth. During the occupation of Greece in times of Alexander the Great and his four generals after Alexander died, there were Israel was once again occupied, and they were determined we are not going to succumb to the Greeks. According to history, one group decided we're going to move off down into the caves and just have our own little colony. You ever heard of people doing that? They were called the, supposedly the Essenes. There was a group of people that they had money and they liked the status quo and they were able to make money no matter who was in power. They became the Sadducees. But there was another group. They said, we're, we're not going to go with the status quo and we're not going to just blend in with Greek culture. And we're not going to leave the people and run down and hide in the cave. What we're going to do is we're going to get, keep the people together and keep them to God. And, te- and I read this in a book. I'm not making this up. It was, I should have made a copy of it, but I didn't copy that page. Their motto was where the law speaks, we're going to speak. And where the law is silent, we're going to be silent. And they called themselves the Pharisees. Isn't that a good idea? Where it speaks, I'm going to speak. Where it's silent, I'm going to be silent. I thought we invented that. (laughs) We weren't the first ones to come up with that. That's a very noble thing. Look what it turned into in Jesus' day. Where he said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That very noble beginning. You shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. According to Matthew 5. Isn't that kind of snowball and get away from you? Let me tell you a true story. We were in Hawaii. My brother-in-law's, sister-in-law's, Bev and I. We were in Hawaii. And Tom and I, my brother-in-law, we were walking along. And he goes, look at that fence. And this fence was about, oh, man, that's a big fence. And he said, I go, it's a rock fence. What, are you amazed with rock engineering? You know, now, I mean, he's an engineer type. And I figure, well, maybe he just likes the engineering of this fence. He goes, take a real good look at it. So I walked up, and it was made out of coconuts. Isn't that cool? They built a fence out of coconut. You have to be careful over there because them things will fall and they will hurt you. I mean, it's dangerous. I mean, there ain't no market for them over there. So they build fences out of these. It was a fence out of coconut. One of them had hit the ground. And I go, hey, a coconut. And so I picked this coconut up on it, off the ground. I've got a coconut from Hawaii. Okay, and so I go over there and kind of clean it up and all that. And I show Bev. She goes, oh, that's cool. It's a coconut. And so we've seen coconuts, right, apparently. And so I decided, okay, we need uh, we need to remember our trip. So I wrote her a little inscription on there in Maui, Hawaii, and put the date on it, forever and a day, which is what I always tell her. Now it's a memento. <laughs> it's not a coconut anymore. It went from a coconut to a souvenir to a memento. Did you know you cannot bring stuff off the Hawaiian island back to the mainland that grows? <laughs> And I spent a full week with my brother-in-law's going to UPS, FedEx, black market to get this coconut out of Hawaii. And finally, I've got this coconut. I can't throw it away because I done wrote on the thing, you know, and Bev's attached to the thing. So I get to the airport and I get to spend an extra hour in customs. And they finally said, okay, this coconut's dead. You can, I, I knew that when I picked it up off the ground, it was dead. I didn't pick it off the tree, man. And so they let me bring my coconut home. But you ever had stuff start off small and then snowball on you and then gets out of hand? Happened in the Bible an awful lot. We've got to be careful with that. 
Now, in the case of the coconut, it worked out. In the case of the Pharisees, it didn't work out so good. In the case of the Sanhedrin, it didn't work out real good, did it? we got to be careful, folks, that things don't snowball and get away from us to where we don't even recognize the noble intentions that things were started with and actual scriptural basis that it was started on. we got to be careful that we stay with the law of God. Now, I'll talk about Ezra and Nehemiah for a reason. Ezra didn't do it by himself. Ezra did not rebuild them walls and the temple and all that by himself. I don't know how many thousands were. If you read Ezra 7, they, they go to the king and they say, we want to go back and we want to go to Jerusalem, we want to rebuild everything. And he says, cool, basically. He said, but here's the deal. You're not forcing anybody. You ain't going to pull that baloney. You go tell the people that they, I will let them go back if they go of their own free will. But I don't want any of this stuff of, hey, if you don't sell out and come with us, you're going to hell. I don't want any of that going on. You let them go of their free will. If they don't want it, you know what that tells me? They didn't all go back. Some of them had managed to blend in to the, to the society they were living in. After 70 years, you know, one of the big problems we had, Bev was scared to death. We decided to move back to the Gunner area. I was looking at two different things where we were at at the time, you know. But I was looking at Mexico or Massachusetts, and she couldn't decide which she thought was worse. <laughs> Should you go do a work? And we wound up going to Gunner and all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? How many thousands had to make a decision, do I go back or do I stay? You know what holds us in Gunner? It ain't the landscape. It ain't, it ain't the garden spot of Texas. Kids. Grandkids, parents, family. You reckon they had family there? Reckon some of them left, some didn't? Jesus said, if you love father or mother more than me, son or daughter more than me. True story, did a Bible study one time. Boy, I, feel, I, I know what kind of day this dude was having because I've had him. <laughs> and uh, I did a Bible study and I read the verse in Matthew 10 about you can't love father or mother, son or daughter. And this, this little girl, she had this little baby. And she looked at me and said, let me tell you something, Marley. I can love God more than him. <laughs> Did I tell you what kind of day he was at? <laughs> but I don't know about this, that baby. Pretty tough, isn't it? What would you do? Well, they made that decision in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, there were thousands of them, I reckon. And we don't know their names. The Bible doesn't tell you anything about them. God knows who they were. God knows who went and who stayed. Now, it does kind of give you a little bit of a history of them and some of the, the genealogy type stuff. But Ezra and Nehemiah didn't do it by themselves. Ezra didn't do it alone. I like the book of Acts. <clears throat> when you get into the eighth chapter after the stoning of Stephen. Because there was a persecution of the church. Saul was leading the way who eventually became Paul. And it says that the disciples were scattered, all of them except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And they that were scattered abroad, everybody but the apostles, went everywhere preaching the word. James, John, Peter, the 12 apostles, Paul, they were great men, but they didn't do it by themselves, folks. How many countless thousands have been involved in the 
building of the kingdom and the spreading of the word, and we don't even know their names. A hundred years from now, people are not going to remember us. Solomon said, one generation comes, another and goeth, and soon forgotten. And that's kind of the way it is. But what they did was what, what, mounted, what was important. God knew who they were. He knows who you are. But what you're doing is very important. Because it's going to affect generations of your family to come. Make sure you choose wisely. Nobody's going to do it by themselves. You're not going to hire one guy. And a lot of churches have tried to do this. They're going to hire one guy to make church go. Ain't going to happen. It's never been that way. Wasn't that way in the first century? It's not now. You know what I like about Antioch? The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And you can decide whether that was who called them that and whether it was an insult or not. You figure that out. But they were called Christians first in Antioch. Barnabas was seeking Saul. He got Saul, and then they went. They didn't start that church. Who started Antioch? I always thought it was interesting, the Macedonian call, a man of Macedonian saying, come help us, and the first person he runs into is a woman. <laughs> Lydia, seller of purple. I understand that if you were a seller of purple, you were doing pretty well. Paul said, you communicated once and again to my need. You reckon the seller of purple had anything to do with the ministry of Paul? Backing him? I would imagine so. We don't know much about her other than what little is said there. You reckon she had something to do with it? We're not, no one person's gonna do it by themselves. Now, our government has a unique ability. Very unique. And they can spend money on stuff that to you and I, we call it moto. Masters of the obvious. You know, football coaches are moto. Bill Parcells coached the Cowboys. They asked him one time, what are you going to do, coach? And he said, well, I think if we can score more points than the other team, we might can win. And they printed that. I mean, talk about master of the obvious there. You know what I mean? A moto. It's just obvious. Now, our government spent money in a moto situation, masters of the obvious. There was a group that was growing in South America, and they were growing by leaps and bounds. And they want, our government wanted to know why they're growing so fast. That's cool. So they sent a, a group down there, and now I have to adjust for inflation. At the time I heard this story, it was $6 million they spent, probably around $60 million today with inflation, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And they wanted to find out why that group's growing so fast. You know what they come up with? Here's a $6 million sentence, okay? I hope I can get this right. The growth of any movement is in direct proportion to its ability to motivate 100% of its membership to continual evangelistic efforts. I could have done it for 1.5. You know what that means? That means if everybody goes to work, we're going to grow faster. That's what that means. And they spent $6 million to tell me that if everybody goes to work, it's going to grow. You know, the church can double every year. I've always believed this. You know what has to happen for the church to double every year? Each member convert one person. Bring one person. In 365 days. I think you can accidentally do that. We luck out more than that. That's why we write newsletters to the churches that support us. Well, we can get lucky, you know, sometimes and do that. Are we all working? Are we all involved? Are we letting somebody else do it? If we all go to work and we all do what we can, then things will change. The church will grow. And people will come and people will be saved. But nobody's going to do it by themselves, folks. Heard a story one time, this little lady, she was so proud of her congregation. 
and it was not in the church of Christ, but you'll understand where I come from in the language. And she said, we are so lucky. We've got brother so-and-so, and he does all our preaching. And we got brother so-and-so, and he works with all of our young people. And we just hired brother so-and-so, and he does all of our church work for us. Really? You know, I can do teaching that I'm supposed to do. I can't do yours. No more than I can commune for you. I can't do that. That's your responsibility. And as far as the work goes, I can do the work God's given me to do, but I can't do yours. You have to do that. And if we all go to work, it's going to work. Are you important? Will this thing function without you? Will it? My grandfather was a logger in Arkansas. <laughs> Love this story. I don't know why this is true, but my grandfather said it, so it must be accurate. He would cut these round pieces of log, call them bolts. I don't know why they call them bolts, but that's what he called them. And he would roll them bolts off this flatbed truck and into a pile and all that stuff. And he rolled it down there, and the grandson scattered. We scattered. We saw a bolt come in that round piece of wood. We scattered. And he looked and goes, boys, y'all going to live in Arkansas. You're going to have to learn to get out of the way. So there, if you know how to get out of the way, Arkansas is for you, apparently. That's what I got out of it anyway. One of the, It wasn't an hour after my granddaddy said that that one of them rolled onto his toe. <laughs> and he lost his toenail. And the first time I'd ever seen a man with a logging boot and a house shoe <laughs> and a chainsaw. <laughs> Sounds like something out of a horror movie, doesn't it? But I mean, evidently, he needed to move out of Arkansas because he didn't get out of the way. But you don't think, of, I guess sometimes the ladies may paint their toes or something like that. You might think about it. You lose one of them rascals. You'll think about it. Doesn't seem important, does it? Isn't that what, what the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians about the body? What makes you think you can sit out and not do your job and it'll be okay? Where'd we get that idea, folks? Who told us that? Oh, it's going to be okay. I don't have to do my part. Now, I went to work for Burlington Industries. I heard a term that I'd, I'd never heard before. I'm going to give you the short version of this. I work nights. I thought that's pretty cool. I like working nights. And that way I could, I, I could work all night and I could go home, get a few things done. About that time, Bev would get out of school and I could chase Bev and then go back to work. Of course, I didn't plan sleep in there. And that's a mistake. You need to plan that. And so about Thursday, I was sick. I'd go to work on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night and gone to bed. I did this regularly. And on Thursday, I'm out of there. <laughs> and so they called you into the office. And they had a term that I'd never heard. It's called laying out. You can't be laying out on us. They go, and this guy, he's from my little hometown. He goes, Marlon, what do you think happens when you lay out? And I'm going, this is a multi-billion dollar company. You, I'll be back. Don't sell the farm. I'll be back in a few days. He goes, you really don't get it, do you? That We don't shut those machines down. Somebody got to do your job. That's why we hired you to start with. Well, we all understand that when it comes to our jobs, what makes you think is different with the church? I do like this story. The fellow I heard talking about, he, he said he was doing a cup of sink of coffee. <laughs> He said, you don't actually drink it, you do a cup of psych. He, he mixed it in instant coffee, and he looked at the lid, and he said, that reminds me of the brethren. And this guy goes, what do you mean? He said, well, right there on the lid, 98% of the active ingredients have been removed. <laughs> Where did we get the idea that we're not important and 
we don't have a part to play in a role. Brethren, we all work together. It'll work. But when one of us is not doing the job we're supposed to do, it makes it hard on everybody else, and it makes it hard on the church. Now, one of these days, the Lord is going to take account of this sort of thing. And he's going to want to know why we did what we did. Nobody does it by themselves. You don't do it alone. And it's not going to happen here with one or two. It's going to take everybody. We're all going to have to pull together. Or it's not going to work at all. Ezra says this. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. You know, the first thing he did is he got it right here. Between the ears. That's the first thing that he did. used to have a sermon. I got it off of a book somewhere that I called a checkup from the neck up to cure stinking thinking. (laughs) I thought it was clever. You know, I mean, desperate people do desperate things. We can make a sermon out of anything, I reckon. But uh, the first thing he did was he prepared. Have you ever noticed in Scripture that's the first thing they do? Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians 3, the mind, the knowledge. You starts right here. Are you determined? Ezra was determined we're going to follow God. And he made that his point. And it was between his ears. And that's where it started. You know the first thing that you have to do to recover from an addiction? Is determine I'm going to make a change. It starts here. I want to do something different. I want something better. And I'm going to change. And it's going to start right here between the ears. And that's where it's going to start for me and you when it comes to serving the Lord. Are you determined to serve God? Then it's going to start right here. You're going to have to be determined. Somebody said, well, I'm not Ezra. Yeah, you are. Now, you may not write scripture. That's okay. But Ezra is no different than me and you. He people. He was born. He lived. And he died, believe it or not. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. God uses imperfect people to do his perfect will, folks. He has to, because there's only been one perfect person. We killed him. Are you determined? Have you set your mind to it? Now, I know next next Sunday will be the first Sunday of the month, of the, of the new year. You know, I still think I can, I'm not even going to make a, a re, New Year's resolutions. I just pinned the ones from last year up. There's still plenty of them need to be done. <laughs> Wasn't very determined, were we? What happened? He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. He was determined that he was going to find out what God wanted him to do. And then he was going to do it. I'm going to do it. You know, the Bible tells us to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. I went to a kayak shop. I got into kayaking a while back. I'm out of kayaking now. I'm a recovery from that. But I got out of kayaking, but I went into kayaking for a while. And I went into this shop because I, if you go into kayaking, first thing you got to do is subscribe to a kayak magazine, which I did. And so I got all this good information on the, and basically it's selling you equipment. So I went in and I went into this kayak shop and they have these carbon fiber, real light ones, racing ones and sea going with all the hatches where you can put all your camping equipment, like <laughs> sleep on the ground. No. And so I went in there and I talked to the young man and I said, what is the number one thing you sell? And he looked and he goes, self-delusion. <laughs> I go, you're selling self-delusion. That's pretty good. He goes, let me ask you something, fella. 
He goes, you got an RV? I go, yeah. He goes, describe it to me. I go, well, it's got granite countertops, two slides. It's got a queen bed, 32 foot. He goes, you really going to sleep on the ground? <clears throat> I go, so what are you going to eat? And I go, well, we're going to go in there. We have an oven, a stove, microwave, and all that. And he goes, you're going to build a fire and cook a weenie out there? On that? Really? <laughs> I go, hmm. He goes, so you really need the, the 17-footer that has all the hatches that you can carry two weeks of, of gear with you, right? No, probably not. He, he goes, you know, they sell some good ones down at Walmart <laughs> for guys like you. You know, and, but that's what he told me. I sell self-delusion. People go and buy. How many times have we gone and bought something that we really got to have? And you, it go, Bev calls it the graveyard. I've got tools I've never opened. But one of these days I might need them. Self-deception is going to cause people to be lost, folks. Be you doers of the word, not hearers only. Doing what? Deceiving your own self. Look at how many times the Bible talks about being deceived by self. Lying to yourself. Ezra said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn what God wants me to do, and I'm going to do it. And then he said, I'm going to teach it to others. And then I'm going to teach others what to do. Here's what God wants you to do. That's the formula, folks. That's the formula for anything that you want to do in life. But especially in serving your God. You determine I'm going to serve God. You determine in your heart. You learn what God wants you to do and you practice. I wish I could practice everything I preach perfectly. I can't. I want you to know that. But we know what God wants us to do. So we determine in our mind we're going to do it. And then we're going to teach it to others. And that's what Ezra did. He taught it. To others. He taught it to Israel. Now, let me give you a little scenario here. Joshua made the famous statement, Choose you this day whom you'll serve. After Joshua dies there, it says that all the days of Joshua, Israel served God. You know why? Joshua was determined in his heart that he was going to serve God. He was going to do what God told him to do. No, he wasn't perfect. He messed up too. He's a human. He wasn't a little God or an angel. He was a man. And then he taught it to Israel that there, choose you this day, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. All the days of Joshua, Israel stayed true to God. And all the days of the elders that outlived that had known Joshua and the mighty works of God, Israel stayed true. What happened when they were all gone? That's when they started downhill. Because a leader decided, I'm going to do it. I'm going to determine, I'm going to learn it, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to teach it to others. That's what we need to do. Choose you this day. Don't deceive yourself. Determine in your heart to serve God. Find out what He wants you to do, and then teach it to others. If you're here this morning, we can help you. Won't you come as we stand and sing?